everybody, I'm Jen, bookstore owner. And I'm Lane, bookstore buyer. Here at Bard's Alley Bookshop in Vienna, Virginia. And you were tuned in to We Speak Volumes, a Bard's Alley Bookshop podcast. This is where we talk about the classics. Some we've read before, some we're reading for the first time, what makes them timeless, and what we really think about them. We discuss books for all ages and across genres. During each episode, share our own stories as they relate to these classics. So what do you say, Lane? Should we book it? Yeah, let's book it. Hello, listeners. This is Jen and Lane from We Speak Volumes, and today we are going to bring you some detective fiction. Lane, why don't you tell everybody what we're going to talk about? It is Raymond Chandler's first novel with Philip Marlowe called The Big Sleep. Yes, we are going to get into some, I know, what do we call it? Like, Noir. We just felt like we needed to go back to this because remember when we did The Postman Always Rings Twice? Yes. I think we missed that a little bit. So (laughs) we wanted to go back. And this was a really fast read because it was so entertaining. It is. It's also a bit confusing. Yeah. Why do you think that? Oh, let's talk about that later. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I did actually write down all the names of the characters. Oh, no way. And it's at least. 12, and that doesn't include any of the cops. So, anyway. <laughs> of which there uh, are at least three. Yeah, so I'm thinking there's like 15 to 20 main people in here. But anyway, first I want to talk about Raymond Chandler, though, as a person. Because okay. he did not write this novel until 1939, and he was born in 1888. So, do the math. He had a very interesting background and different careers before he actually picked up writing. I know, he did. So he grew up a little bit in Europe and some in the States and was not very wealthy, did not have a good family life. His dad left early on and his mom was just struggling to help the family survive. He ultimately ended up on the West Coast because he went to live with some relatives, but that's really where he landed. And he spent most of his adult life on the West Coast. He said that he started reading these pulp magazines. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Like more short stories or something? Yeah, lots of short stories. There's that hard-boiled detective fiction, murder mysteries. So the main one was The Black Mask, among others. And they were really dirt cheap. Okay. (laughs) Right? These little pulp magazines. So you could easily get them. And I think there was a quote that he said something about how he liked it because they were cheap and he could throw them away. (laughs) And he wasn't into the women's, quote unquote, magazines. That's right. As he was driving up and down the Pacific coast, he found the writing pretty forceful and honest, even though it had its crude aspect. And so... What did he do? But he wrote a story and submitted it and it got published. And I think that became the basis of The Big Sleep. I just wanted to talk about that term, the crude aspect. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting because it's so accurately expressed. There's a lot of that in what he writes, particularly in this It is crude. It's a little, at times, offensive Mm -hmm. and shocking. Mm -hmm. When he was able to reflect back on that, because that quote was from 1950. So this is kind of a few years. Because he wrote seven. Philip Marlowe? No. Philip Marlowe didn't write the novels. I'm looking at Lane, I'm like, wait, I know that name, Philip (laughs) Marlowe. Is he on your list of characters by any chance? Oh, wait. He is, he's not. I forgot to write him down. (laughs) He should be first. Sorry. Yes. The main character in said novel, The Big Sleep. (laughs) 
<laughs> is Philip Marlowe. And I think I saw them as the same person because this is written in the first person, right? Yeah. It's told in the first person. Yeah. So Raymond Chandler, Philip Marlowe, it's like they're the same. But my point was that this was a very successful novel and he wrote six more with Philip Marlowe as the main yeah. character, kind of all of his little capers and things over time. I haven't read any of them yet, the other ones yet. Neither have I. But this is something other authors in this genre, right? People are, I'm sure, familiar with. Oh, yeah. I mean, Philip Marlowe is pretty iconic. There have been a few people who've played him on the big screen. And Robert B. Parker, who's also a mystery writer, has picked up that series and ah. has been writing Temporarily. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wait, okay. He's writing now. Is what yes. I mean. He's not writing like contemporary Philip Marlowe. No, no. Okay. Um, dude, that'd be like <laughs> Surfer Dude. <laughs> it's right. Yeah. Surfer Marlowe. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that because where all this is taking place is in LA. Mm-hmm. And you remember that movie LA Confidential? Oh, yes. All I could think about because I am a very visual person. Mm hmm. Having that, I could see the dress and the characters and the way they talked and, you know, went from place to place. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. And actually, in the edition of The Big Sleep that I have, James Elroy, who wrote L.A. Confidential, does the introduction. Whoa! We did not plan this. This just came up. This was an organic little commentary. Did you tell? Yeah. (laughs) So, I think Chandler, he was able to reflect back on what really got him to start writing. And... He had a career based on that. When I started doing a little more research, he said that he really did not focus on as much on the plot. He was quoted as saying the scene outranked the plot. Right. Right. And a good plot made good scenes. Yes. And then I took that a step further. It was atmosphere, characterization, people and places. And I know we're going to talk a lot about that when we get into the actual novel, but man, you could feel that atmosphere. Oh, absolutely. And I like in another one of his quotes, he talks about how previously detective stories had always ended with the the denouement of the Mm, mm wrap-up and that everything that came before it was just in service of that one end of the show, end of the story moment. And in his mind, he didn't think that was necessary. Like you didn't need to call out who did it, per Mm. se. Mm -hmm. Justice didn't need to happen. That's the big difference, I think. The killers don't always come to justice. Ah. That's what I'm trying to say. So it's not like a whodunit where your opening scene is, there's been a murder, like clue, you know? (laughs) Okay. And the bad guys have to get taken away by the cops. That's going to happen. And it's going to be like a big public thing. It's always done like in the parlor, right? Yes. Miss Marple is going <laughs> to gather everybody and reveal the murderer. But in this, even though there is that similar sort of denouement at the end where we do discover this overarching crime, nothing happens about it. It's just we're now aware of the circumstances mm-hmm. and that's it. It's so satisfying, sort of unexpectedly Yeah, I think he doesn't set this up as a situation where the bad guys, quote unquote, are going to get hauled off. And in fact, only one person in the book does. (laughs) And a lot of them die. Yeah. (laughs) But a lot of them also get away with it. What I couldn't get over was how many secrets upon secrets that everybody had. And it was like, I'm going to keep this secret from that person, but I'm going to let that person know that I know. But then... That person's going to tell me their secret, but maybe not 
another secret. And it was just this whole web of the ever expanding web of deceit. Yep. Yeah. I know. And it gets confusing at times. This is what I was referring to earlier, where it's hard to know how all of the characters intersect. It sort of comes out at the end. But in the meantime, it's like, wait, who is this and how are they relevant? And did we hear about them before now? Yeah. And a lot of the times the answer to that question was, uh, no, 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 they're just being introduced. And suddenly they're part of this huge plot and they're the bad guy. And <laughs> somebody's pulling a gun on Marlowe. And yeah. yeah, taking that a bit further, when I mentioned earlier, I did mention Clue. Also Knives Out and mm. The Glass Onion, you know, those. Oh. it's really more of following clues. I love how they did it in that movie where they say, oh, I saw this and then that and then that and it led me to think this and then boom, I solved it. And that is not what Marlowe does. No. He's watching people visiting places, like I said, sharing information or not to try to get information out of people. So it's way more personal. You know what I mean? Yes. That's one of my favorite things about this particular character Mm -hmm. is his sense of responsibility Mm. to his Mm -hmm. clients, his sort of ethical stance, which is murky at times. But I'm going to read something because I liked the way he even put it. So at one point, he's at the police station. They just hauled in one of the murderers. (laughs) (laughs) The one who's still alive. (laughs) At any rate. And so he was giving the cops some information. And the cop is basically asking him why he's sort of being reticent with certain pieces of information for a pittance of a salary, right? And also the fact that he's calling the cops out for racketeering. Yes. And so Marlowe says, I don't like it, but what the hell am I to do? I'm on a case. I'm selling what I have to sell to make a living. What little guts and intelligence the Lord gave me and a willingness to get pushed around in order to protect a client. It's against my principles to tell as much as I've told tonight without consulting the general. That's his client. As for the cover-up, I've been in police business myself, as you know. They come a dime a dozen in any big city. Cops get very large and emphatic when an outsider tries to hide anything, but they do the same things themselves every other day to oblige their friends or anybody with a little pull. And I'm not through. I'm still on the case. I'd do the same thing again if I had to. Yes, bravo. I want him in my corner, too. Yes. And I like how on the side of the general, who is the initial hire, Mm -hmm. he is and remains until the very bitter end. There's no extortion. Marlowe's not trying to bribe people with new information. He really is. No matter what, the only reason I'm in this situation is because the general hired me. On my client's behalf. On my client's behalf. Right. And what I like about it, too, is... He offers to give back the money to the general that he got from him, saying that he didn't really do the job to completion. That's right. Yeah. And the general kind of poops that idea. (laughs) Very nice general. And I think in a lot of ways, it's because he likes the general as well. Yeah, he respects him. Yeah. Yeah, And he protects him from certain truth. That's right. Just to wrap up Chandler's life. Wow, we got off tangent. I know, that's okay. He also was known as a very good screenwriter. And he actually co-wrote the screenplay for Double Indemnity, right? Yeah. Which is really cool. And then you mentioned someone famous wrote one of his screenplays. Yeah, William Faulkner actually 
co-wrote the screenplay for The Big Sleep. Ah, he was and, one of the writers working on it. And have you seen that movie? Oh, yes. Okay, I haven't seen it. I think it's a really faithful adaptation with one exception. And it's basically so that Bogey and Bacall could fall in love on screen. Oh, just like Bogey and Bacall. <laughs> <laughs> Sailing away to Key Largo. That's right. Um, yeah. Wrong movie. I know. <laughs> And so in Chandler's personal life, he fell in love with a woman that was 18 years his senior. Wow. And they were married for 30 years. Oh, I know. Her name was Sissy. And he was so heartbroken when she died that he basically went into deep depression and he had an alcoholism and eventually he died as well. Yeah. He lived how many years after she passed? Let's see. She died in 54, 59. So it was wow. about five years. Yeah. So and anyway, left behind the legacy of this wonderful character. And now we're going to talk a little bit, I think, about the big sleep itself, because what I found the plot is very interesting, but he definitely came through. Yeah, <laughs> you know? there's no way to recall this with yeah. any sense of... There's so many... Like, twists and turns. Twists, and yes. But here's a funny thing. Okay, mm. so I'm sitting down to read this. I really didn't know anything about it. It starts out in the bookshop with bookselling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Turns out that they're selling <laughs> porn behind the, you know, like <laughs> the secret door. <laughs> Not rare books, but things with illicit drawings and stuff. But we that, have no such door at the no, Bards Alley. I'm just saying. Although one of my neighbors, to be unnamed, teases me about that often. And anyway, that's a side thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, I was like, oh, wow. But then it's like, oh, gross. <laughs> 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 but it is an important part because that is kind of the criminal activity, right? Because yes. remember, 1939, yep. where things are not like they are today. Nope, um, but porn still happens. It yeah. does. It And it did. And anyway, that's where our scene begins, right? Because first it begins with, why don't you talk a little bit about the meeting with the general? Yeah. So the whole thing opens with Marla going to this very ritzy house, meeting the butler, <laughs> who mm -hmm. ushers him in to meet the general, who is wheelchair bound. And he meets him in this hothouse, basically, because yeah. the general is getting old. His blood is thin and he's always cold and meantime of course marlo is just like sweating like crazy oh, yeah. yes and the general's being blackmailed yes that's the whole jumping off point for this is that this gentleman who left his car saying <laughs> he did ad geiger right yes says that his daughter carmen the general's daughter carmen owes him several thousand dollars worth of gambling debt. And would he be so kind as to pay that? <laughs> it's all civilized and also wrong. Yeah. yeah. Even before he meets the general, though, it starts out very oh, bizarrely. Oh, I forgot about that because, with Carmen. Yes, Carmen. Who and tried to sit in his lap while he was standing up. It was so <laughs> weird, this whole... So these are the two daughters of the general, Carmen and Vivian. Yeah. And they are, oh... A crazy pair. Not well behaved. No, <laughs> not at all. And what also comes out in this opening scene with the general is that Vivian, the older daughter, was married to this man who suddenly up and disappeared. 
And the general liked this guy a lot. Yeah. He was a bootlegger. Rusty Regan. Yeah. After that first initial discussion of his name, his whole name, he's just known he's as Regan. Regan. After that. That's right. That's part of an underlying theme. Because the general misses his friend, Regan, uh-huh. and just wished he knew where he was and if he was okay. And that comes back, I think, in Marlowe's mind very often as he's trying to solve this blackmailing situation. That he's like, do you really not want me? Or was he trying to ask me to find out? And I think he thought, does he really want me to try to find this guy? And everybody he encounters along the way says, yeah, you're looking for Regan. Yeah, it really wasn't. Nope. And he keeps sidestepping it and saying, nope. (laughs) I know. People don't believe him. They don't believe him. not even Vivian, the wife, who she and Marlo do not get along. They are just oil and vinegar. Yeah. Just at each other all the time with very few exceptions. And Carmen, the younger daughter, is basically a child. Yeah. She sucks her thumb. Yeah. They constantly mm-hmm. talk about how she's sucking her mm-hmm. thumb mm-hmm. and she's, giggling. Yep. She giggles all the time. Yep. And throws herself at men, like yeah. everybody. Everywhere. Yeah. She's loose. She, she's a floozy. And she's a little <laughs> loosey goosey, too. She, yeah. Like, she doesn't have a, a full deck of cards no. up there. And he's trying to deal with these women. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, I know. Who I are mean, just kind of plaguing him. Yeah. Plaguing is right. So this is where I think he builds the atmosphere. In many of these interactions, there's a lot of smoking. There's a lot of drinking, hots. <laughs> there's a lot of sex appeal being thrown around to mm. try to get your way. Lots know. of gams. Oh, oh boy, yes. does that man look at legs? <laughs> yes. Gams left and right. I know. <laughs> That's so true. It's really interesting. Like I said, I can just see it. And the guy is on the move all the time. Yeah. It's hard to keep up with him. And it's also really surprising how much happens in a very condensed period of time. I think it's five days, not even. I think it's only three days worth of work. wow. So when they finally solve the first murder, which is Geiger himself. Yes. He's the guy who's doing all the porn. And it turns out that Carmen is one of the women that is part of it. Because he has a little studio set up to take nude photos yep. in his house. Yeah, but She's all drugged up. and Yeah, and he drugged her. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah. this is some serious stuff. People. And that's how Marlo followed Geiger, and he heard these shots, and then he goes in, and somebody's running down the back staircase, and Geiger's lying dead on, bleeding out on the yes. floor. And Carmen's there all naked except for these long earrings. <laughs> And she's completely out of it. But the photo's missing. Yes. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, I got to get her out of here. And he does manage to get her out of there. But when he goes back, the body's gone. (laughs) Nice transition, (laughs) Lane. (laughs) That's from the audiobook that I listened to. Between each chapter, they had music like that. It was fantastic. It really lent a good flavor to the audio. I love me a good soundtrack. I think I bought more movie soundtracks over the years than any other. And I'm talking like cassettes and CDs when you had to actually buy hard material. Yeah. I love it. So thank you for bringing that to the table. Literally to the actual table we're sitting at. (laughs) And I think from that point forward, when Marlo goes back and the body is missing. Yes. That's when the whole thing opens up. What's interesting, too, is that he does eventually find who killed Geiger. Correct. Who also... (laughs) (laughs) was killed and his car went off into the pacific ocean (laughs) the killer got killed the killer got killed exactly and the killer was the chauffeur of 
Sternwoods, which is the general's family. Because he didn't like what Geiger was doing because the chauffeur was in love with Carmen. And she toyed with him. Wasn't he the one that gave her the revolver? From Owen Taylor. Yeah, you're right. Not the Owen Taylor that lives in my neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like at that point, we start meeting the characters just start flowing in like hot and heavy. You got all these different people. But in the background, the whole time, Vivian and Carmen, they keep showing up in Marlo's life. He is like, you guys leave me alone. (laughs) Especially you remember the one scene Carmen gets into his building, shows up, she's oh, yeah. like naked in his bed. Yeah, and he walks And he's like, he God, in. get out of here already. <laughs> <laughs> and she won't. She refuses. And he oh. yells at her and threatens he's just going to toss her out oh. in the buff and yes. throw her clothes out after her. <laughs> he's so mad. He's just so angry that she's defiled the sacred space that is his apartment. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because at the end, he says he tore up his bed. Yeah. Because he was just like, he couldn't stand that she was in there. Yeah. And then Vivian, she's a very different personality. Yes. Has a very different relationship with Marlo. What do you think she's trying to get out of him? I think she wants to know really why he was hired Mm -hmm. by her father. Mm -hmm. She fully believes that it was to find her husband. Right. Who disappeared. But he's being really cagey and he's not forthcoming. And she's so frustrated by him. And she just wants him to crack. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't. No. And then... He realizes that she's up to no good. She's hiding something. Yeah, she is. And somebody's got something on her. And I think that pisses her off too. Ah. Because I think he keeps getting closer and closer and closer to the truth. And she is part of that truth Mm -hmm. that he is slowly uncovering. And I think she's scared. She's in a bind. She made a very desperate decision that she's now stuck in the middle of and can't get out of. And she's going to be found out. And I think that's it. Like you said earlier, everybody's got secrets. Everybody has secrets. And nobody wants them to be revealed because hence the term secret. She thinks everything would have been fine if her father hadn't hired this private investigator. But she really loves her father. Like you said, Carmen, I think she just doesn't play with the full deck. Vivian's just, she's a sad kind of character. Yeah, she's in over her head and she knows it and she doesn't know how to get out of it, like I said. I wonder too if Marlo isn't a bit of a hope for her. Like Mm, maybe mm -hmm. he can help her out of this jam or Uh maybe he's making it worse. I don't know. Everybody starts dropping like flies. Like all these people who are connected to this deceit that she is a part of, they just start dying and it's bad news. And there's one guy who Marlo kind of liked that was Harry Jones. He was following him around, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And wanted to give him some information. There's this whole... Ay, ay, ay. No, because yeah. everybody thinks they've got something on somebody. And or... they do. That's yeah. the thing. They all have something on somebody. Yeah. The blackmailing comes back because somebody has the picture of Carmen. And they threaten and they want money. And prior to the original blackmailing, the general mentions that a few months ago or however long ago, this guy named Joe Brody had blackmailed them as well. <laughs> that guy comes back into play and he gets killed, right? The kid killed Joe Brody because he thought Joe Brody killed Geiger, but I Joe Brody did not kill Geiger. At least that's what Marlowe thinks. Lundgren also turns out to be Geiger's lover. Yeah. Well, he gets arrested. Yes. Marlowe takes him to the cops. Yeah. And he's not talking either. One of the detectives asks the boy, do you admit shooting Brody? 
And then the boy said his favorite three words in a muffled voice. <laughs> Go F yourself. It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. It's great. And that's like pretty much all the kid says. Yeah. And it's just yeah. the way that he writes that in. It yeah. actually is one of those kind of comedic things. Yeah. And then Marlo asks one of the other coppers at one point, and do you say anything? And the cop says, yeah, he made a suggestion. <laughs> I let it ride. <laughs> Let's talk about that relationship between Marlowe as the PI and his relationship with the cops. Yeah. The detectives are mad because he's not sharing information. Like, mm-hmm. he's telling them, uh, like, 24 hours after the murder happened. He's like, oh, hey, you can find a body at 123 Sutton Place or whatever. <laughs> and then he also is working with this missing persons bureau trying to get information there. And they're all like... Tell us what you got. What? Are you, why are you doing this? And dead bodies keep showing up wherever yeah. you are. Yeah, right? it was that idea that if you had told us earlier, two people would have not been murdered. Right. Because of you, two people were murdered. Mm-hmm. And he's and like, he's but like, I'm doing this for my client, yeah. right? They have a somewhat contentious relationship, but they also do share information. I just thought the relationship between... Oles, who's like the main detective. Yes, and they Marlo. have a good relationship. Yeah, they do. And I know I've seen movie after movie. I haven't read as many novels, but where I can just see that relationship where they're sitting at the coffee shop next to each other, sharing, like pretending they're not talking, but talking, sharing information, like a clandestine little meeting <laughs> or something and helping each other out. Especially when Oles finds out that the car went into the ocean uh-huh. right? off the pier. Yep. When he finds out the car goes off the pier is registered to the general, he calls Marlowe. Because he's the one who referred Marlowe to the general. Correct. So he's yeah. like, okay, let's get you in on this. And it's stuff like that, though, that it does move forward his investigation. But you're right. Some of them are really pissed because they're doing some not so savory things. Well, and also they make a good point, right? If he had come to them after that first murder, maybe these other two people wouldn't have been murdered. <laughs> right? Maybe. Okay, fine. Cause and effect, people. Cause and effect. But the other thing Marlo always does, and it's written so well in here, is they give credit to the cops. Anything that Marlo solves. Oh, yes. Well, there was one line in there, I think it was the missing persons bureau. And he was like, I suppose that I'm the one that would have solved this one. And then it comes out, you know, is this like clean story and everything. But yeah, I think that was really cool. And everybody's got their guns and their like little pistol here and there. And because these are bad people. All right. Nobody in this story is a good person. They've all committed crimes. Yeah. I mean, not the general. But maybe (laughs) not that we're aware of, you know, he's just trying to do what's best for his daughters and keep them out of trouble. And uh, (laughs) he can't seem to do. Yeah, because they associate with bad people. Eddie has a gambling operation. Yeah. Reagan was a bootlegger. We've got Joe Brody, who's a blackmailer. Yeah, he's all around. He's a total (laughs) joke. And he steals all the books from Geiger, remember? And he moves them all. Yeah. Because he wants to take over that illicit book lending (laughs) operation. It just was fascinating. Oh, and then there's the whole story. This is where everything gets super convoluted. When Reagan disappeared, he ran off with Eddie Mars's wife. Did he? That's the story. Correct. But no, he didn't. No. <laughs> you got to read the book to find all yeah. that out. <laughs> and so there's this whole other sort of end plot around this supposed couple who yeah. ran off together and left everybody high and dry, but they actually didn't. 
Yes. And that's why it's so good. Like you were saying, the solving who was blackmailing, that wasn't a goal. Like that wasn't the point of why Raymond Chandler wrote The Big Sleep. He brought in all these other things. He did. And it was strange to me because as I was reading it and the murder gets solved, that happened a little over halfway through. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so you still have like the whole back half and it's like, well, what the heck is going to happen next? Where is this going to go because we just You're solved right. the murder. You're right. And, and we know who the blackmailer right. was and all this stuff. You're and then right. And it just became mm-hmm. this sort of odd search for Reagan. Also, there are all of these threats, right? Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like he tugs on one and another comes loose. And it's like he just has to follow them. Yeah. Because there's just loose ends. And, and I, eventually yeah. he does discover the truth. Mm-hmm. And boy, it's a doozy. <laughs> But as you mentioned earlier, he doesn't disclose what he knows to the general. No, he because doesn't. he knows it's going to kill him. Yeah. If he knew the real story, yeah, it would be the big sleep. Death is the big sleep, right? <laughs> and I didn't even think about it like Mm-mm. the title of this book until the very last couple of pages, where that's what he's saying that it's sleeping the big sleep. Yep. I have so much to read, people, but I think I need to read another Philip Marlowe book. Yeah. It was very good. It was. And I had never read this one. I'd seen the movie, which I loved. It's really good. If you haven't watched the Bogart film, please watch the Bogart film. And they do change the relationship between Vivian and Marlowe in that I think you cannot deny the chemistry, the way he looks at her in that movie. It's just right there. Same with her. They still have a bit of a feisty relationship, but they ultimately do fall for each other and like one another. Okay. Yeah. He refers to her as the wonderful daughter. (laughs) Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. So she does is a little bit different of a character. Yeah, she is. Because he never did that in the novel. He never would. I think the jacket, and then I know you want to talk a little bit about the publishing house for this Mm -hmm. one. It says, when a dying millionaire hires Philip Marlowe to handle the blackmailer of one of his two troublesome daughters, Marlowe finds himself involved with more than extortion. Kidnapping, pornography, seduction, and murder are just a few of the complications he gets caught up in. Why would you not want to read this? It's true. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, there you go. I'm just going to do this as contrast. So the blurb on the back of my book says, When old man Sternwood, a dying millionaire, hires Philip Marlowe to expose the blackmailer of one of his troublesome daughters, Marlowe finds himself involved with more than simple extortion. Kidnapping, pornography, and seduction are just a few of the complications standing in the way of completing the task at hand. And just as Marlowe feels he's getting a hold of the situation... He discovers the first body. Oh, that's good. So this one is Black Lizard Edition 92. And mine is the Vintage Crime Black Lizard Special Edition 2022. Wow. Okay. So that's quite a big difference in publication dates. 30 years. Yeah. So tell us about the Black Lizard. Oh, so back to Postman Always Rings Twice, this Vintage Crime Black Lizard collection, they're reviving a lot of these old classic crime novels. So it includes, obviously, The Big Sleep, The Postman Always Earnings Twice, The Maltese Falcon is in there, mm-hmm. and there's a bunch of others, and it's a lot of fun. Oh. A Judgment in Stone by Ruth Rendell, 
cool. We are super fans of mystery writers, and we ha- have a lot of mystery writers that are friends of the store. Most recently, we had Angie Kim, who wrote Miracle Creek, uh-huh. and her next novel comes out in September called Happiness Falls. Angie is so interesting and smart, and her book Miracle Creek, it won the Edgar Award Ooh. for Best Debut Novel. Highly recommend this novel. So she joined us on Independent Bookstore Day, which was amazing. Yay. And then our dear friend Harper Kincaid, she's more of a cozy mystery. So mm-hmm. that's a very fun book. She joined us as well. And it's a great community of writers. Ellen Crosby was also with us because we wanted to do a little mystery panel. Yeah. And her books are more, I guess, contemporary. So her new book is called is Blow Up. And it's Sophie, I think it's Medina or Men series and it's more Washington focused. Oh, cool. But we do have to acknowledge our number one fan, David Baldacci, who lives nearby and has been a supporter from like day one. Oh, he's fabulous. David recently created a new series based on the character Archer and the books are One Good Deed and Dreamtown. It is a new series about a straight talking Former World War II soldier, fresh out of prison for a crime he didn't commit. And he just becomes involved in solving these different crimes around the places that he's living. And this is definitely a nod back to these novels in these times. And I highly recommend picking them up as well. So Mm -hmm. we couldn't end this episode without acknowledging all the amazing mystery writers that we have in our presence. Yay! And... Chandler, not Chandler Bing, but Chandler, (laughs) he also was the president of Mystery Writers of America and still an organization today. So thank you very much, Raymond Chandler, for giving us this character of Philip Marlowe. Detective extraordinaire. Private investigator. Oh, fine. (laughs) P.I. One of the things that we neglected to talk about, and I think we need to talk about just briefly, is his actual writing style. Oh, yeah. And it's wonderfully descriptive in so many ways. And I think that's something that distinguishes him from certain others. I know is his sort of ability to use metaphor and simile. And there's that scene where Harry Jones dies Mm -hmm. and Marlowe is there in the background when it happens, like hiding because he was supposed to meet this guy. Anyway, so there's this moment where he hears voices talking and he goes into the next office and he said, I put my gloves on, leaned softly and lovingly against the door and pushed the knob hard away from the frame. I pushed the celluloid plate into the wide crack and felt for the slope of the spring lock. There was a dry click, like a small icicle breaking. I hung there motionless, like a lazy fish in the water. I like that. I love that. And also, the next thing I'm going to read is sort of haunted me. Oh. Because Harry dies of cyanide poisoning. Oh, right. Yeah, it's pretty brutal and gruesome. And Philip Marlowe really liked this guy. And Harry misled one of the bad guys, right? Yeah. Who was trying to find another person. And Harry lied about where that person was hiding. And he didn't really give up Marlowe either. And so Marlowe hears all of this, and he has a lot of respect for this guy. And he's leaving that scene of Harry's death, and he's walking to his car. And it says, it was raining hard again. I walked into it with heavy drops slapping my face. When one of them touched my tongue, I knew that my mouth was open, and the ache at the side of my jaws told me it was open wide and strained back. 
mimicking the rictus of death carved upon the face of Harry Jones. Wow. Right? Like, that is really visually impactful. Yeah. That's something that I feel haunted by. But it also is really expressive of who Marlowe is as a character and where his loyalties lay, where his heart is, and the pain that he goes through in all of this. He really does. He suffers a lot. I think he does. I mean, he's kind of broke. Yeah, he doesn't ask for a lot. He doesn't ask for a lot. He's not with anybody. I think he's in his, like, his 30s or something. You know, he's just trying to get by. Yeah. And he's good at what he does. I was just going to read a little bit from some of the, like, the banter between him and Vivian. It's when he first meets Vivian, I believe. And they're talking about finding Reagan, right? And she says to him, well, how will you go about it then? How and when did he skip out? Didn't dad tell you? I grinned at her with my head on one side. She flushed. Her hot black eyes looked mad. I don't see what there is to be cagey about, she snapped, and I don't like your manners. I'm not crazy about yours, I said. I didn't ask to see you. You sent for me. I don't mind you ritzing me or drinking your lunch out of a scotch bottle. I don't mind you showing me your legs. They're very swell legs, and it's a pleasure to make their acquaintance. (laughs) I don't mind if you don't like my manners. They're pretty bad. I grieve over them during the long winter evenings. But don't waste your time trying to cross-examine me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know. And she says, people don't talk like that to me. You know, (laughs) oh my God. I love it. Oh, that's so great. Just setting those scenes, like that visual description like you're saying, just like the mournful or just kind of reflective of what he's seeing. Yep. But then also this dialogue, it's perfection. It is. He's such a great character. He's a brilliant lead. And I would be happy to read another one of these along the way. And thank you for staying with us through our little chit-chat ramblings and my seriously caffeine fuel. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's good. Thank you, listeners. And thank you, Ryan Grover, for producing and editing our episodes. Yay, thank you. We are very grateful. We appreciate you listening on all platforms where you can get our free podcast, commercial free. We encourage your feedback and comments via those platforms. And we also do hope to see you at Bard's Alley here in Vienna, Virginia. Thanks for continuing to listen and stay with us. And happy reading. What do you say, Lane? Should we book it? Yeah, let's book it. <laughs>